It's Tuesday, December 2nd, 2014 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I will now play a bit of audio. It is in Norwegian, but I can translate the video that you're about to hear is of a Norwegian fighter jet. And outside the pilot's window, he sees a Russian MiG and he says this. Translation, what the hell? This was just disclosed that a Russian Foxhound jet and the Su-34 fullback, a top-of-the-line Russian fighter jet, came quite close to a Norwegian Air Force fighter. And my thought was... The Norwegian Air Force has fighter jets? But yeah, of course they do. They have 57 F-16s. They participate in patrolling the skies. They're a NATO ally. They're not Albanians. The Albanian Air Force, no jets, 26 helicopters. The Estonian Air Force, no jets, four helicopters, two jet trainers, and a utility aircraft, total seven aircraft. By comparison, the Houston Police Department has 16 helicopters and one fixed wing. LAPD still leads America in aircraft, 19 helicopters and one fixed wing. But anyway, the Russians, they're doing their Russian thing. They're not invading airspace. They're leaving when confronted. But you know, they're saying, we're here. We're here, Norway. Yeah, we know you have Air Force jets. Now you know we have them too. But listen, if I could bring to you facts about the Albanian Air Force, I think I've done my job. On the show today, I spiel about the media coverage of an alleged gang rape at the University of Virginia. And I speak with Megan Dom, an essayist and L.A. Times op-ed writer who hasn't written about the LAPD's helicopters, I don't think, unless she actually wrote the screenplay to Blue Thunder and I don't know about it. But first, leading off, it's another exciting round of the game where we question questionable science. Is that bullshit? So I could tell you a couple things about myself. For instance, I'm in autumn and I have combination skin. And so I know that this means that, you know, like pumpkin colors work well on me. But what about pumpkin itself? What about spaghetti? I'm told over and over again, often via pop-up ads in websites I go to, that I need to test my sensitivity to certain foods. I don't know. I think there are such things as allergies. But I wonder about this idea of food sensitivity. Or maybe it's one of those things where it's actually a fact that people know about, but now they're calling it something else. I don't know. Whenever I have questions like this, I have to call in Maria Konnikova, who is here with me. Hello, Maria. Hello, Mike. Maria writes about science and psychology and social sciences for The New Yorker, and then she comes in and plays Is That Bullshit with us on issues of science and sciencey things. And people are extremely attuned to foods, and I think they're also very willing to believe that there are good foods and bad foods beyond what everyone knows, like too much uh, too much icing might not be good for you. But what, what do the people who are saying that I might have food sensitivity, what are they really saying? Are they saying allergies? Well, I, I don't think they are saying allergy. What they're saying is if I give you an allergy test, if you go to an allergist and you get the normal skin pricks or other type of test, you're not going to find anything. They're going to come up empty. However, I know that there are certain foods that make you feel worse and certain foods that make you feel better. And you're sensitive to those foods that make you feel worse. Now, a doctor is not going to be able to pick up on it, but a nutritionist might be able to tell you that, hey, you know, maybe you should cut out gluten. Gluten is a new favorite and you'll be fine because we think you're sensitive to that. That's what they're telling you. The question is, does 
this actually exists, of course. Right. Now, I've also read that a lot of people believe they have food al- allergies, but technically it's very small. It's in the single digits, the percent that do have a food allergy. Yeah. So then does, uh, so is this why this idea of sensitivity rose up? All right, it's not an allergy, but we'll call it something else and pretend it's on a continuum? I think so. But the truth is that allergies aren't really, in this particular case, aren't really on a continuum when it comes to you know, I have sort of an allergy. Mm-hmm. You either have it or you don't. There are more and less severe allergies. Allergies themselves aren't a continuum. So to some foods, some people might just have a skin reaction. Others might actually go into anaphylactic shock. So that's a continuum of allergies. But both of those people are actually going to test positive on an allergy test. There are also things that are food intolerances, which mm-hmm. aren't quite allergies. You're not going to have an antihistamine allergic reaction, which is what happens with your normal allergy. Instead, you're lactose intolerant. You're not allergic to milk. That is a real thing because your stomach doesn't have the enzymes to process it. So you're not actually processing it properly. And then what happens is you get sick, but you don't. It's not like you suddenly, you know, your throat swells up and you can't breathe. You just, you feel you feel sick. You feel lousy. Okay, lactose intolerance is real, but your New Yorker colleague, Michael Spector, was it, wrote mm-hmm. this pretty big and controversial article. Shouldn't be controversial. It's pretty fact-based, but people didn't like hearing that there really is no such thing as gluten intolerance. Right. Except if you have celiac disease. Exactly. So what happens in lactose intolerance is, as I just mentioned, you actually lack an enzyme to break this down. There's no equivalent unless it's celiac disease, which is an actual allergy in gluten. If you don't have celiacs, your body is able to process gluten. It's not like you can lack this, but also not test positive for an allergy. Mm-hmm. And so what what they're saying is well there's nothing wrong with your body, but you just can't process it and we're not quite sure why. And to people this this is complete heresy to say that gluten intolerance doesn't actually exist as far as we know because they say well I know myself and I know my personal experience and I've cut gluten from my diet. And I feel a million times better. So is there sensitivity? What do you think about this issue of food sensitivities? Well, I honestly don't. I I haven't seen any evidence that food sensitivity is a real thing in a healthy individual. So let's, you know, there are diseases that make you just less able to process certain foods because your body is changing. So let's preface this by saying you're healthy and you just decide that you're going to have more pep if you cut out sugar or if you cut out all refined grains or if you cut out gluten entirely or you know you make any one of these choices or you go on the you know south south beach diet or some other fad diet and suddenly you think that oh you know my juice cleanse makes me feel amazing right. that means i must be sensitive to all these other foods um that I don't think we have any evidence 
to say that something like that exists. So Prevention Magazine writes about, says there are allergy symptoms like a scratchy throat or hives or swelling, so you don't have those. But what about that brain fog you've been feeling or those bouts of breakouts you can't seem to shake? And how long has that joint pain been going on? Those seemingly normal symptoms aren't normal at all, says J.J. Virgin, New York Times bestselling celebrity nutritionist. I like that title. (laughs) And author of the new book, The Virgin Diet Cookbook. I read it because I thought it would advise me to eat virgins. That's not the case at all. (laughs) You're commonly sensitive to the things you eat all the time. And thanks to things like stress, GMOs, gluten, and medications, our small intestines are loosening up faster than ever, letting your food start to permeate it and cause an immune response. J.J. Virgin just combined some real things and some junk science in that sentence. That does seem to be the case. I'm actually having a hard time following the logic. Brain fog. You're getting brain fog. I'm getting brain fog. Did you eat cheese recently? I didn't eat cheese, but I might have had some gluten. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's play our game and then let's pivot off that and try to help people. Food sensitivities. What do you think? Is that idea? Is that bullshit? As far as we know, that seems to be bullshit. Okay. And that's not to say that we won't at some point have a controlled study that shows that there's actually something to some food sensitivities. But in healthy people, as far as the evidence that we have today shows, food sensitivity is bullshit. Have they been trying to isolate this in a real study? They have. There's a really interesting study that Michael Spector actually goes through, which was originally cited as evidence that there is such a thing as gluten sensitivity. But by the way, this study wasn't in healthy people. Mm -hmm. These were in people who already had an illness that had to do with digestion. They originally thought that gluten was the culprit because when they did a double-blind study, people who had eliminated gluten from their diet started feeling better. But then they realized they did a follow-up study after the study got all the press in the world that showed that it wasn't actually gluten, but it was some other compounds that were responsible. And of course, no one wrote about that study. Mm. But once again, that already the premise is different from my criteria because we have people who are already suffering some distress. Are studies often published like study fails to find food sensitivity, or do those studies just get thrown no. in the trash? That's what's called null findings. And there's a joke among scientists that is repeated, I think, in every single science that we should have a publication that's devoted to null findings. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist. And if you, you can't publish a paper that says, we found no effect, that's not going to get any press. It's not sexy. And Maybe this is why we have so much trouble disproving the idea of food sensitivity. I think that's right. It's a problem, it seems. It's a huge problem in science. It's not not just about food sensitivity. No, it's all about food sensitivity with me. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it's all about gluten. Let's get get even more specific. But no, it's, um, it's a major problem that we don't know the results that say, no, this is not a real effect. And we cling to the small studies that are there, even if it's small effects and small samples. And the funny thing is, even the authors of those studies, normally they're good scientists and they say, hey, this is really preliminary. You can't draw any strong conclusions. But of course, we want to believe in our own experience because to us, that's always the single greatest evidence. So if I feel worse after eating a bagel, then I am sensitive to gluten. Yeah. But much like the food stuff itself, there is a hole in that theory.
There is indeed. Maria Konnikova studies this stuff, studies the stuff that's not even studied. She talks to us in our Is That Bullshit segment. Thank you so much, Maria. Thank you, Mike. With the torn up bowel, constant food envy, because every product's got fructose, lactose, gluten in the fine print, this food, that food, even in the wine bin, we don't dare. Cause we got celiac in our veins But every product's like fat-free, sugar-free Nothing artificial, hot foundation Essayist Megan Dom has that New Jersey, California, Nebraska connection. She's lived in all those places. And she thinks about things in a way differently, I think, than a lot of people writing today. She likes to puzzle things out, but she's really entertaining along the way. It's the sort of ideas that even when you don't agree with her, you're drawn in by the quality of the intellect and the quality of the writing. Megan Dom is now the author of a new collection called The Unspeakable and Other Objects of Discussion. Hello, Megan. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm really, really well, although I hear now you're supposed to say really good, although I always used to say really good, and then someone told me once to say really well. Really, why? It's, it's highfalutin to say well. That's just, like, too big for your britches. I like to midfalutin, incorrectly. Per- personally. <laughs> you got highfalutin and big for your britches in there, in that same one. I'm, I'm very sophisticated. <laughs> so, the essay that made me say, oh, I got to talk to Megan, and I say this every once in a while, is the thing in um, the New York Times Week in Review, where you talked about your near-death experience, and I want to ask you about that, and it's in the book too, but the Times version of that, in a sentence, was a near-death experience does not always offer intellectual clarity as much as people pretend it does. Or even spiritual clarity. (laughs) Yeah. Our culture is really fixated on the idea of the redemption narrative. We love the idea that if you go through a trauma or some kind of crisis or difficult experience, you're going to come out on the other side a better person. You will have learned a lesson, the aha moment. And I had this experience where I had a freak illness, and I was put in a medically induced coma, and I emerged none the wiser, by the way. It was a terrible ordeal for everyone else. It was kind of no skin off my nose. And I came out, and and it was really lucky that I recovered because I had been very, very seriously sick. And people said, well, what have you learned from this? Are you going to be a better person now? Or, or you know, tell us, tell us what, what, what the key to life is, or tell us, you know, what we should be doing differently to live a, a you know, fully realized life. And I just... I didn't really have anything to say to them. And, and it actually reminded me of, of the kinds of things I was expecting of my own mother when she was dying. And she had died less than a year before I had this illness. So it was very much in my mind the, the things we expect of people who are dying, of people who almost die, people who go through difficult experiences. And it's really unfair. There's a kind of tyranny of, of epiphany in this culture. We, we want others to come to some grand conclusion, and we want that for ourselves, too. But it doesn't work that way most of the time. And politicians use this when they tell the anecdote about someone in extremists and the piece of clarity that they got. But the entire medium, you know, if we want to talk about podcasting as an outgrowth of maybe the phonograph, Edison invented that to record people's last words. You call it the uh, the tyranny of epiphany. But I think it's also tied in with 
how we say things to ourselves like, you know, he's a real friend. When you're in a dire situation, he'll be there for you. Well, most of life isn't a dire situation, you know? And to judge things only when we're in extremists seems human, and I understand it, but it seems wrong. Yeah, I was just happy that I was the same person when I when I got better. I, you know, I mean, I had had a part of the complications from this freak illness was that I had meningioencephalitis. And so when I was in this coma, the doctors were telling my my family things like, you know, she might if she doesn't die, she might have brain damage. I mean, just terrible, terrible things. And my husband, you know, he said very frankly to me afterwards, he said, my biggest fear was not that you would die. That was my second biggest fear. My biggest fear was that you would not be the same person when you emerged. And the fact that I actually am the same person, I'm the same grumpy, complainy, sometimes petty, shallow person that I was before, is actually a miracle. That's a miracle, that I stayed the same, not that I changed. Yeah. But listen, Megan, when you walk through a Whole Foods, you get an idea, right? When I uh, read the New York Times on the elliptical machine, I get an idea. Going through experiences gives us an idea, too. Uh, you, you got some idea from this. You got some insights. What insight did you? It doesn't have to change your life. You didn't have to put everything in perspective. What's a thought or two I got from, from this experience? Yeah. I guess that there is a kind of mandate to come out with something. I, <laughs> I, I guess my, my main thought was... Well, I feel badly that I can't come up with anything better for all these people that, that care so much about me and, and seemed to, the only way they could sort of believe that I, I had officially gotten better, that I was no longer sick, was that I would be a changed person. So that, that started me thinking, and, and it, it did hook up to a lot of the experiences I'd gone through with my own mother when, when she was dying, and the way our culture is so sentimental and just the way that, that we kind of impose an emotional experience onto situations where we might not feel those emotions. It wasn't even a thing from this book, which are a series of essays, but they're like 30-page essays. So they're not like your L.A. Times columns. These are big, meaty thoughts on things. Why the length? How, do you, how are you drawn to that? I wanted to do a book of essays where I was not constrained by length. I'm a newspaper columnist, so every week, almost every week, I have to write a column that hits 730 words. And it's a great discipline, but it's also limiting and can sometimes be frustrating. And I really love the essay form. I love writing a personal essay that transcends my personal experience and goes on to talk about larger things in the world, and often you need a lot of room for that. Is the newspaper column dead? Not yours. Mine, personally? No, no. The form. <laughs> Not yet. The form. <laughs> no one ever said, the best form of human expression is 800 words. It was literally formed to fill that particular space. But now there's a lot of talk. I mean, op-ed columnists seem less vital. The 800-word sports column is something that we've debated on uh, our podcast, Hang Up and Listen. So what do you think about the newspaper column as a form? Oh, that's interesting. I don't think they're dead. I think people really love reading things in short bursts. You know, there have been times when I have published, you know, really long pieces, and, and I get people saying, well, that's too long. Or, or I have noticed on certain sites, like Medium, I think is one of them, at the front of the essay, at the beginning of the essay, they will say how many minutes it takes to read it. Yeah, we do that here at Slate. You do? Yeah. Is that a service or a hindrance, do you think? But how do you... How do you how do you decide 
how how fast a reader somebody is. is well, it we we calculate we calculated based on this guy Don, who we keep in a cage. Uh-huh. And we just like give him all the articles and see how he does. No, I think it's like a standard words per minute thing that uh, is somehow the like college educated U.S. standard. That's a great question, but there is an answer I don't have. I don't know if we're around the same age, Mike, but it's these are these are these are the the new ways of of the young people that often leave me scratching my head. Yeah, I think we're almost exactly the same age. Mm-hmm. So, Megan Dom is the author of Unspeakable and other subjects of discussion. She also wrote My Misspent Youth and. And uh, what was that good book about real estate? Life would be perfect if I lived in that house. Life would be perfect if I lived in that house. It's pretty long, though. I'd like to know how many minutes it takes to read that title. (laughs) Megan Dom, thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. It was fun. And now the spiel. Yesterday I spoke about the importance of the galvanizing anecdote. That topic was Michael Brown and Ferguson. Now we move on to the UVA rape case. Rolling Stone reporter Sabrina Rubin Erdely's account of a gang rape in a fraternity house at the University of Virginia. Seven assailants, two men egging them on. Not a date gone wrong, not a drunken hookup, not even a predatory lone attacker who didn't ask for consent or take no for an answer. No, a premeditated gang rape. Now the story is being questioned. The room was described as pitch black. How can the victims see her assailants? A glass table is said to have been broken. Therefore, the entire hours-long ordeal seems to have taken place over shards of broken glass. A UVA official, Emily Renda, testified about a gang rape in a fraternity house before the U.S. Senate earlier this year, but misidentified the number of assailants. Now, all of these things can be explained easily enough, and none proves that the story didn't happen. But there was at least one bit of journalistic elision. The author, Sabrina Erdely, didn't interview the supposed assailants. Here she is talking to Slate's Double X podcast last week. Hannah Rosen is asking the questions. What was their response to, to, this, to the allegation? Uh, th- there was never needed for a response until I, until I stepped in. So Erdely took that question from Rosen to mean, what has been the accused rapist's response to past investigations? But Rosen wasn't asking that. She was asking this. Did they try and contact you? Did you try and call them? Like, was there any communication between you and them? Uh, yeah, I, I reached out to um, I reached out to them in multiple ways. It, they were kind of hard to get in touch with because their, their contact page was um, was pretty outdated. But I wound up speaking. I wound up getting in touch with their local president, um, mm-hmm. who sent me an email. Um, and, uh, and then I talked with their sort of, their national guy, who's kind of like their crisis, their national crisis manager. You know, they but were not both, the I mean, actual were, boys. Like They're both helpful in their own way. No, not the actual boys. Erdely's editor at Rolling Stone told the Washington Post's Paul Farhi, quote, we did not talk to them, we could not reach them. I by chance, talked to Erdely in person on Saturday before I knew that there was any debate about the veracity of the Rolling Stone story. She said that Hannah Rosen's question seemed like cross-examination. I explained that I thought Hannah was just interested in repertorial process, but it did compliment Erdely on the story because it seemed like an explosive piece of reporting. But if the story's not true or much more ambiguous than has been portrayed, that's a big problem. Worrisome to me is this idea as advanced by Erdely's Rolling Stone editor, Sean Woods, who said that the men were not named in this story because, quote, we were telling Jackie's story. It's her story. No, 
That is not how journalism works. And for this story to have impact, it has to stand up to the highest journalistic scrutiny. This was such an atypical case. Statistics suggest that the spate of rapes on college campuses are nothing like this incident. And while the university's ham-handed response may have been typical, you have to wonder if there are real factual questions about the incident itself, how can the university's response be held up as an example of malfeasance? Though actually, no matter what the reality is, if a UVA undergrad really is making these allegations, it goes toward a point that's been made by Yale Law Professor Jeb Rubenfeld, among others, that campus panels need to be taken out of the equation of prosecuting rape. But yeah, the actual story matters. I hope that all the questions regarding this piece of reporting are answered satisfactorily. But I want to caution against drawing the conclusion that this means campus rape is mostly an invention. And to tell you the truth, I haven't seen that being argued, maybe intimated, but not argued. What I have seen put forth are sentences like this from Jonah Goldberg, writing in the LA Times. Then again, the media also uncritically reported Tawana Brawley's stories and those of the accusers of the Duke lacrosse team. That is not true. The media waited until social activists demanded attention be paid on Tawana Brawley, a teenager in Wappinger Falls, New York, who claimed that she was raped. Here is a New York Times piece from a few months after the first allegations were made. After four months of intensive investigations, authorities say they found no evidence to support charges and implications by lawyers for Tawana Brawley that three white law enforcement officials brutalized the black teenager in a four-day kidnapping last fall. Peace goes on to say, an inquiry by the New York Times and interviews with these authorities have provided a reconstruction of the movements of the men and have found that the men have extensive alibis for the period the girl was missing from her Wappingers Fall, New York home. The title of that case is Figures in Brawley Case, Allegations Without Proof. It was not the media buying a narrative. And the Duke Lacrosse case was a bit more complicated. Many in the media rushed to conclusions. That's what many in the media do. But some didn't. There was definitely a tone of the privileged elite versus the African-American stripper, but eventually the story began to be fleshed out. True, even as the alleged victim story fell apart, there were still calls to turn the Duke lacrosse case into a teachable moment, but those calls went pretty much nowhere in the light of the exoneration of the players. Jonah Goldberg does allow that the real story in these cases did eventually come out when, quote, the rest of the media started doing their jobs. Well, in the case of this story, the vetting is happening within days. If Rolling Stone emerges from the other end fact-checked and verified, it will strengthen a very disturbing story. If holes are poked in that story, it will be a shame. And while it shouldn't hurt the overall effort to reform the handling of rape on campus, it might. But the scrutiny of this story isn't an indictment of the media. It's a success. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi is sensitive to wheat, but then again, a stalk of wheat mocked her relentlessly in high school. Just intern Claire Tensketter is lactose intolerant, but soy septing. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, has a sensitivity to salami. Not the food salami, the character salami from The White Shadow. So affecting. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is insensitive to the needs of squash, which got him censured in the Gord Senate. You can subscribe to us in iTunes and give us a review. I say that all the time. Please give us a review. We're also in Stitcher. Our daily email can be signed up for at slate.com slash gist email or yo serves a similar function. We are on facebook.com slash slate gist. Email us at the gist at slate.com. 
I am extremely food sensitive. I weep at the plight of the corn chip. I decry the underfunding of marzipan. And I'm hoping to raise awareness for the fact that Noki becomes all but invisible in our society over age 50. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh Levine, the host of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. On this week's episode, we talk about a shocking death in the sport of cricket, one that's shaken up the entire country of Australia and all followers of the sport. Search for us in the iTunes store or by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts.